You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. In a mining town, on the second moon of Jupiter, something deadly is happening. Pretty soon I'll see that this is just like every other mining town. I work these people hard, and I, uh, I let them play hard. Never much trouble. We're all professionals. I'm sure we are. We've only been here two weeks. It'll get better, I promise. I got nothing more on that incident in the mine yesterday. It looks like some guy just went wacko. Happens here. How often? I don't know. It just happens here. Why? I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't tell you why. Some people just can't take it here after a while. What's that guy think he's doing? No way it could have been homicide. Had to have been a suicide. 28 in the last six months. Did you do autopsy? No. Then how do you know it was a suicide? There's no other explanation. When a person exposes himself to zero pressure atmosphere, there isn't a whole lot left to inspect. Something's there, isn't it? Maybe. Try and meddle, I want you to know what you're meddling with. How do you leave? You know, with grown ups here. Bingo. Marshall, you're dead. If you're the kind of guy you're supposed to be, you wouldn't stick around. That's why they sent you here. Maybe they made a mistake. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Also back in the booth is Mr. Josh Hadley. My men, my men are shit. This week, we're looking at Peter Hyams' 1981 film, Outland. The film plays like a Western in space with Sean Connery as Marshal W.T. O'Neill, the head lawman at a rough-and-tumble mining colony where a mysterious series of deaths puts him at odds with the powers that be. We'll be getting into spoilers galore as we discuss this movie, so if you haven't seen it before, check it out. Come back, we will still be here. So, Jedediah, when was the first time you saw Outland, and what did you think? You know, it's another one of those movies that I feel like uh, I grew up seeing bits and pieces of it on TV in the 80s for, you know, I felt very familiar with it. I don't think I actually saw the whole thing until sometime in the last 10 years or so. I liked it more than I thought I was going to as a kid. Uh, as a huge Star Wars fan, I, I just wanted anything set in outer space that looked halfway decent. 
this was definitely there. But when I when I saw the whole thing a couple of years ago, ten years ago, sometime in there, yeah, I thought it was pretty solid. This time, getting uh, prepared to talk about it, I, I actually liked it better than uh, than I have before. So, yeah, I think it's pretty solid. How about you, Josh? I actually read this movie before I saw it because I caught it on HBO or Showtime in the, I don't know, 83, 84 or something like that. But Heavy Metal Magazine had serialized this over five or six issues right when it was still in theaters. And even though I was way too young to be reading Heavy Metal, my mom just considered it a comic book. So without necessarily realizing it, I read the comic adaptation before I saw the movie, but then I, when I, once I saw it as a kid, I didn't like it. I found it boring and slow. As an adult, I like it quite a bit. Wonky science and plot holes all included. I don't know why I didn't see this movie until I guess maybe it was maybe 20 years ago, but kind of like you, Jed, if it was a science fiction movie, if it was set in space and I was a, a younger person, I was going to try to watch it. I guess this one was a little too mature for me. It was, it was kind of like, I think what was Saturn three? Like I didn't see that until just a few years ago either. I have to say, I like this a lot more than Saturn three and I like it a lot more than the black hole, which I think I used to get outland and the black hole mixed up for some reason, probably because they, they were released around the same time. Am I speaking correctly about that? Two years apart. Okay. Well, it felt like it was right around the same time, but I, I think they kind of got lost in that whole post-Star Wars, we're all going to aim at doing space movies now, so hurry up and let's <laughs> just shoot all these things out into the atmosphere. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoy this movie more than the space stuff, because when they finally start to go out into space and kind of to your point, Josh, the wonky sci-fi that we have, especially, you know, the science part of it. I enjoy the personal relationships and I love the relationship between Sean Connery and Francis Sternhagen in this movie. They are absolutely terrific together. Outland owes more to Alien than Star Wars because it's not about a fanciful environment. It's about a very small environment, an enclosed environment with a very dirty, used up, very corporatized future. I know this is Warner Brothers and Alien is Fox now, you know, House of Mouse. But you tell me that aesthetically, this could not have been that that Khan Am and Wayland Yutani could not be subsidiaries. Absolutely. And just the set dressing and the way that the girders look and all of those kind of things, it looks like the Nostromo could pass by at any moment. And it's dirty. It's it's lived in. It's used up, unlike something you'd see in Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars, the original, was a little dirty and all that. But in, in that kind of sci-fi, you usually have that cleaner environment, which is one of the things I think Himes did perfect here. Because, like, go to 2010, the year we make contact. Look at the design of the Leonov versus the design of the Discovery. And you see the total differences between the decades and the styles of the Leonov looks functional and lived in. The Discovery looks like something out of a comic book. Yeah, I'd say that uh, clearly belongs to the same school as Alien and, and the same universe even possibly. But uh, I think Star Wars is, is pretty pretty lived in. I do think the more uh, appropriate dichotomy would be Alien and this versus, like you're saying, 2001 for that very sleek, polished thing. Speaking of the dirt here, it goes all the way down to the uh, the racquetball 
court, which is, you know, kind of sci-fi. I got the lighting up panels and things like that, but it's, it's got a ring around, like, looks like a ring around a bathtub, you know, just a ring around there of that, that ball bouncing against the walls just left grime everywhere. And it's, it's beautiful. When Montone and O'Neill were playing racquetball or whatever the space version would be, I, I know I'm I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but you could almost smell the sweat with how dirty their shirts were, and you could see all the sweat stains. Couldn't you almost smell how bad that room must have smelled? I just thought it was me, but yeah. I also like that so many of these characters are wearing beards, and they just look so unkempt. I mean, James B. Sicking, I mean, he usually looks very together. I'm thinking especially like his character was so buttoned down in Hill Street Blues, and here he just looks really ragged, and it looks like he's been through the ringer. Peter Boyle, who is the Shepherd character, he looks pretty beat up as well, and I his beard is tighter, though not as tight as, like, O'Neill's is, who's the new guy on the ship, but yeah, they look like they are dirty men living in this dirty environment, and that there's one shot in this movie that I absolutely love, which is showing the living quarters of people, and just how they are stacked one on top of each other. They look like rats in cages, and I love that this whole space is about functionality rather than aesthetics. When O'Neill is fighting the, the drug dealer, when the drug dealer is running away from him and they get into the fight in the kitchen, and the drug dealer is trying to kill him. You're in an enclosed space with a specific list of people who are to there, who are going to be there. Where are you going to go? Where are you running? If you kill the marshal in the cafeteria in front of hundreds of witnesses, do you think Shepard can make that go away? What are you thinking? This is an enclosed space. That would be like killing someone in a Walmart and then trying to keep hiding in a Walmart. Where are you going to go? Well, before we jump too far ahead, let's talk a little bit more about the plot and how this thing actually unfolds. Because a lot of people dismiss this movie as, oh, it's high noon in space. And I think that's a really unfair comparison. It becomes pretty high noon towards the end of the movie. But that is towards the end of the movie. That is the third act of this film. That is not the majority of this. And what we have is the majority, at least to me, and feel free to disagree, it's a murder mystery. I mean, we start off with three incidents that happen at this space station where we've got our new marshal, W.T. O'Neill, who's played by Sean Connery. He comes in and he's the people are dying. People are committing suicide or people are freaking out. And he says this doesn't past the sniff test. Something is definitely up here. And he uses as backup for that the crusty old doctor who's played by Frances Sternhagen. And I love that her role apparently was originally written as a man's role. And then it was, according to the audio commentary, it was Hyams' sister who recommended Sternhagen. Rather than giving him a list of actresses, she just said, no, you you need to use Sternhagen. If you're going to gender swap this role, you need to use this woman in this role. And like I said, the chemistry between those two characters between Connery and Sternhagen and their dialogue is so good in these. And I just love how cynical she is and just the way that she self deprecates, but she at the end of the day is super smart and manages to do a lot of the legwork that needs to be done in order to help Connery solve this case. Are you Dr. Lesher? Yes. Take two aspirin and call me in the morning. That's a doctor joke. Are you the new marshal? 
Yes. I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. I got an alibi. I got four people who swear they were playing poker with me. I've never heard that one before. That's really funny. Sorry. Yesterday, a man deliberately went into the atmosphere without his pressure suit. Yes. A couple of days before that, another man cut his suit open on purpose. It happens here. How often? I don't know. It just happens here. Why? I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't tell you why. Some people just can't take it here after a while. Did you do autopsies? No. Why not? In the first place, the company wanted the body shipped out quickly. In the second place, when a person exposes himself to zero pressure atmosphere, there isn't a whole lot left to inspect. In the third place, you're becoming a nuisance. Yes, I know. I would like a report of all of these incidents that have happened during the past six months. I'd like it really soon, or I might just kick your nasty ass all over this room. That's a martial joke. She even takes the initiative as she very snidely admits when she's started looking back at the number of deaths and during the investigation phase. 24 deaths one month, 22 the, the, the month previous, and two previous to that. So there's definitely something hinky here. And then we have this detective story. I mean, we have this whole idea of who is doing what, how is this happening, why is this happening – Eventually, Connery finds out that it is drugs that are doing this thing, again, with the help of Sternhagen, and then manages to find out who the players are, how this goes on, and who the kingpin is of this whole operation. And that is our friend Peter Boyle, who, as this character Shepard, we've seen him earlier in the film, who very clearly tells the new marshal. Just remember that these men and women work hard, very hard. Since I've been the general manager here, this mine has broken all productivity records. We're on our way to becoming the leading con amalgamate operation, and everyone in this room has received the bonus checks to prove it. Good work only comes from contented people. I work these people hard, and I, uh, I let them play hard. So when it comes time for them to let off steam, you have to allow them some room. As long as no harm's done, just give him a little room. Understand what I'm saying, Marshal? Thanks for the advice, Mr. Shepard. We're all professionals. I think it's great that uh, this movie points out that uh, even in space, work meetings are horrible. They're just horrible, horrible places to be. And I wondered, uh, do you think he gives that speech to every new Marshal who comes in? I am positive of it. But he, he says later, he says to O'Neill, you know, what's, what's your problem? You know, everybody else who comes in knows the score and, and they know how to do this. And, you know, what, why aren't you getting on board with it? And is it something that just keeps, his, keeps the pecking order clear to everybody for him to say that? Or is he trying to antagonize O'Neill? I don't, I don't know. It's a little... I, I, I think there was a line of dialogue just buried in some of the the chitter chatter. I think it was with O'Neill's wife that this is sort of a punishment assignment, that he did something wrong at his last assignment, and this is a punishment for him. He's got a so, big mouth, they said. It, so it was heavily implied that he doesn't want to be here, Shepard doesn't want him here, and that this relationship between them was never going to work. It just Shepard thought, you know, like, maybe I thought you were just trying to drive up your price. Yeah, if you're not looking for money, you're stupider than you look. 
I just that always makes me think of the line from the stuff, Michael Moriarty. Oh, I'm way stupider than I look. I mentioned James B. Sicking before, and he is the deputy who seems to be very reliable because at first things seem to be okay between the marshal and his wife, but it is pretty quickly that we realize things aren't that good between the marshal and his wife. And with, I mean, basically we see her in one scene and the next scene of her, she has left him pretty much a dear W.T. O'Neill message that she and their son, she has taken their son and they are going to head back to earth and she's leaving him. And then Montone, the James B. Sicking character, the deputy comes in and tries to be super nice to him. He tells him like, Hey, I also have been left my wife and two daughters. My wife's living with this very boring guy. Second time I did a tour, I got back. My wife had skipped off with some guy who was a computer programmer. I have two daughters. They call a programmer daddy. My wife said she was happy. I said, happy? The guy looks so boring. She said he may not be Mr. Excitement, except he was home all the time. Mother can't argue with that. Try the food. It's not bad. Yeah, I will. You know, the hookers here are nice. Sometimes they can help you when you're lonely. And I think that's what really stings when O'Neill finds out that he's actually working for Shepard. Montone's working for Shepard. Well, I wouldn't say he's working for Shepard because remember, he's only paid to just look the other way. I think I think Montone is very much taking a I, I know nothing kind of approach. So he doesn't seem to be actively corrupt. He's sort of more passively corrupt, if that makes sense. But then he ends up murdering Stephen Birkhoff, who goes crazy in that scene. And that really twists the marshal's, uh, you know, his, his lariat, as it were. That's true. Both of uh, these things about about the wife and about the, um, you know, is it corruption? Uh, how corrupt is the guy? I think is kind of getting at the main theme of the movie, which, which to me seems to be a kind of classic crisis of masculinity kind of picture. You know, the movie opens with those two guys out there on the rig bitching about conditions, about how they're a being replaced by these machines and B, you know, aren't being given enough manpower on, on the job to keep it safe. And then the sicking character, you know, when he's talking about his wife left him too, you know, his comment is, you know, left with a computer programmer. My my two daughters call a computer programmer daddy. You know, like what kind of what kind of man works on computers? You know, I'm out here on the <laughs> doing the the roughneck work, and my kids uh, look up to a computer programmer. And even Sean Connery in this role, yeah, gets to wear a badge and carry a gun and things like that. But but the job is clearly not really what what law it's not really law enforcement it's people get pissed off when he does his job when he tries to stop the flow of drugs and and things like that he's he's only getting in the way of, of making money and uh people having a good time nobody wants him to do his job including his wife she'd rather him just quit but he's kind of got this crisis of uh <laughs> what is it even uh for if uh 
I thought I was good at my job, but my job is actually not to do my job. And uh, everybody in the movie is kind of dealing with that on one one level or another. And the people who are really successful are the ones who can read between the lines and do what uh, is expected and wanted rather than their actual job description. Well, I think there's also the implication, at least, that Con Am kind of knows what's going on with the drugs because Absolutely. you know Peter, the way the way Peter Boyle talks about how you know they've got like some of the best numbers and they need to keep these numbers up but then you also get this sort of space mob this Orion syndicate sort of thing you know we never see them but we just hear him talking to somebody on the communicator that maybe this is like a Conam mob thing in all honesty i could really stand to see another movie set in this universe with the, whatever the space mob would be. I would love to see that. Do a Parker movie set there. That'd be great. And also let's not forget this was 1981 that this movie is coming out. And this is really playing into the fear of automation that was happening. Speaking as a Detroiter, it was happening like crazy in the automotive industry, but it was happening in a lot of other industries as well. So this whole idea of being replaced by robots was a real fear that was happening. So you're able to take that and transpose that onto the space and make it a very real thing for that. Because here we are, we never get the year, which is kind of nice. Like I really don't like when films will say, you know, sometime in the near future or five years from now or give you a very definite date because then we're going to just blow past it and laugh about like, oh, yeah, there's no replicants and it's 2019. Who gives a shit? But I like that they don't give a date, but yet they're playing in very real current fears for 1981 as well as playing against this whole idea of the mining town and the western you know the edge of civilization kind of thing because this you know you can't even go outside in this environment you know, without a spacesuit and if you do you end up like jelly which is part of the wonky science that that's not how that happens but i watched it with my kid a couple a couple weeks ago and and he he pointed that out to me my whole understanding is based on total recall on this so yeah <laughs> I, I remember it was like you know, popular science or something was talking about some of the the most illogical scientific things in science fiction movies. This was in the 90s. I read this issue. And they talked about not the heads exploding and things, but how mining IO like this, the ore that you would get from it would not be worth as much as setting up the colony, having to feed everybody, the atmosphere processors, the sending a shuttle every week would cost more than what the ore is worth. We just kind of got to let that go and just go, okay, let's just enjoy the movie, though. Don't ruin it for me now, man. Don't Neil deGrasse Tyson me, dude. You know, it's, it's sort of like how in Alien 3 at the beginning you go – Okay, so Wayland yutanis fire control systems on a military vessel is to eject the humans into deep space. That's some bad fire protocols, man, when you look at it like that. But but then you have the other things like like when the doctor is, is getting the blood sample out of the body and she just sticks the needle in and the blood comes right up. And you, the science part of you goes, but the blood would be pooling because this – is in a gravity heavy environment and the and the blood would have turned black by this point it wouldn't be this bright dawn of the dead red but screw it i'm just into the mystery now you know what i'm changing my mind on this movie uh, oh I no i'd like it yeah yeah i've wrecked another one mike damn it 
and hey, it was Sean Connery getting that blood. It wasn't Francis Sternhagen. He didn't know. He didn't know to go for the lividity spots or anything. Yeah, he stuck it right in his throat. Which is fair. I also do want to talk a little bit about Sean Connery because this is another one of those weird things. I, I really wish either Sean Connery would learn how to do accents or they would stop casting him as as ethnicities he's not part of. Because O'Neill is an Irish name. But he's got a Scottish accent. That's almost as bad as a couple of years earlier, he made a movie called The Arab Conspiracy, where he plays an Arab prince with the Scottish accent. I never really cared about the Scottish accent. One of the movies that I loved from my youth was, well, I wasn't that young, but watching Hunt for Red October. And it's like, I don't care that he's got a Scottish accent as a Russian submarine captain. It's just something that I kind of go with. Fair enough. As an Egyptian in Highlander, I enjoyed that, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Egyptian peacock. While we're talking about Connery, yeah, he's not glammed up at all, but my God, you can pick out the movie star in this movie. He looks great in that dumpy old uniform. Everybody else looks like hell. Just, you know, they're just unflattering uniforms, but I wonder how many kids went as uh, as O'Neill for uh, Halloween that year. That That's a... He looks cool. Well, I also did. Uh, there's a timeline problem I had with this movie. Maybe you guys noticed it. Maybe you can fill in this hole. So at the beginning, his wife is all burned out and everything. And I also want to say it's a good thing that they do leave because I think that helps the story later with them not having to be there. Otherwise, he'd have to protect them. But he, he says they've been there for two weeks already and she's already burned out. And then the very next scene is him first not only meeting his staff, but all the other support personnel around there who've never met his family. And I'm thinking, so what the hell were they doing for two weeks? It's just a really long, awful meeting. Yeah, because I'm sitting here I'm sitting here thinking, like, were those scenes in the wrong order? And by that time, they're already out of buttermilk. By, by that point, I, I just noticed that I'm like, at first, you kind of get this feeling like he just arrived. And then he says they've been there two weeks, and you think to yourself, so have you just been sitting in your quarters for two weeks? You haven't even met your fucking deputies yet? Are you just going to go through and pick on this movie and all the logic flaws? Because we can stop talking now. No, because I like the movie. These are just things that bothered me when I was rewatching it. Because I really – I like the tone. I like how it plays out. It's well-paced. I actually like, strangely enough, these slower moments. Like w- when they keep showing the countdown clock, when he knows the next shuttle, which I think is 70 hours away, he knows he's got no backup. I love those scenes. It's a very great tension-building thing because Peter Himes, he's made some bad mistakes in movies. Pacing is not usually one of them. He knows how to pace a damn movie. I actually really liked that so much of his surveillance work was just being done with closed-circuit TVs, because that could have been the most boring way to do surveillance, but that he is smart enough to watch these cameras, know where the blind spots are at times, and be able to follow all of these characters that way and do his surveillance with the computer, rather than necessarily having to go out and beat the streets. That's a big strength of Himes, too. If you watch his films, he's got a great sense of place, whether you're talking about the cameras here or the, um, I mean, the, the closed circuit cameras, or you're talking about the chase scene through the, uh, the place. You really feel, I feel like I know the, kind of know the layout. I kind of feel pretty familiar with 
with this place. Whereas, you know, in, in Empire Strikes Back, I love walking through Cloud City, all the, the great cool sets and things like that, but I feel totally lost there. In in uh in his stuff, I feel I feel like I know where I'm at. I know where I'm moving and, and I can't really point to exactly what he's doing, but it's not just this one. I mean, he does great great chases in, in a lot of his movies, foot chases, a lot of them, uh, a lot of great uh, winding through, uh, corridors and, and, uh, staircases and, uh, yeah, just a, something he's really good at. Well, which also goes, I think, to the functionality thing that we were talking about, because think about this on a filmmaking level, those sets where we got it, where Mike was pointing out, you know, they're stacked on top of one another and you get this dirty kitchen and all these hallways. These are all practical, huge sets that Warner Brothers had to build in the UK. And the fact that you had to do that, I think, built into it requires a certain knowledge of the functionality of how would this work if this were real. I like that he doesn't fetish size so many things in this movie either. There's nothing where it's just like, ooh, look at this cool new device that we have and that will do this and that and the other thing. There's no like lightsaber or ray gun or anything that's really out of the ordinary where we have to spend our time focusing specifically on something. I understand what what science there is in this movie, albeit as flawed as it might possibly be, I understand it. You know, I understand closed circuit TVs. I understand the computer interfaces that he's doing. I understand that wonky computer animation that Sternhagen's looking at when she's trying to find, quote unquote, a new molecule or whatever. It's that cool analog future thing, you know? And it's not like we're taking the time to be like, well, this is the XR27, and that's going to do this, that, and the other thing. And it's really going to come in handy at the end of the movie when we do X, Y, and Z. We don't get any of that kind of stuff, and we don't take the time to do that. I mean, O'Neill is our stand-in for us, you know, as we know. Nobody's taking the time to explain to him the technology of the thing. They're taking the time to explain to him more of the sociology of all this stuff that's going on, the way that this this society that he's been dumped into works. So we're learning that when he does, but nobody's taking the time to be like, okay, chief, and then you're going to have to do this, that, and the other thing and flip this switch five times and do that. We never get any of those scenes, which I really appreciate. I kind of half expected something like that when, even though it's relatively obvious that Clark Peters is going to turn out to be a traitor, you know, Officer Ballard near near the end, the one that you think, hey, he came back to help and then he didn't. I, I kind of thought that there would be something like that when he came in, like, haha, you didn't know I knew about all the detonators you placed and the hidden cameras. And I, I mean, they imply with the missing shotgun that, that it was Ballard that took it, but it was, haha, it wasn't anything like that. And I kind of appreciated that. And I like that when James B. Sicking eventually gets it, that he has had the foresight to leave a message in the computer system for the marshal so that he will get that and just that i think it's what two words right just like here you go just check the uh ch- check the storage check the food supply and then you'll see where the drugs are and it's like okay cool that's great speaking of montone's death that the way his tongue is blue and kind of just kind of slightly protruding out of his mouth in the locker that always creeped me the fuck out as a kid that the, just the way his body looked 
He played dead so well in that scene, and just keeping those eyes focused out someplace else was so nice. And it really bums me out that he dies and dies relatively early in this film, because I like that character. And even though, to your point, he doesn't necessarily do that much bad stuff outright, or just really seem to be going against the Marshal as much as he could be, I really was hoping for redemption for that character, and then that he can't be redeemed. You know, he kind of is by him leaving that message for the marshal, but I was really hoping, like, they would pair up and stuff. But then when we finally get O'Neill and and Dr. Lazarus, the Sternhagen character, when they team up, then it's like, okay, good. He has one person in his corner, because nobody has his back. And that's where this movie starts to really cook, is when he learns that no one is on his side. Not his wife, not Montone, not Ballard, as you mentioned. And I do like that the Ballard stuff is more subtle, that we hear that line from Shepard saying, I have a man on the inside. And that we, yeah, we don't get that like, and it was me all along. I do think the movie has a lightsaber. And that is the... uh the lighting in the uh, the sex show. I even saw somebody call that holograms, but I think those are clearly live people. Oh, I absolutely uh, not, agree not with holograms. you on that, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, God, can you imagine being like a, a 16-year-old or something when this came out and then, and then trying to get into, like, find a strip club that had that sort of uh, lighting going on? And how disappointing would that be? No, I don't know if this was meant in as, as an homage or not, but in the Aliens Colonial Marines video game, the bar has one of those exact things set up, and the girls are even in similar positions. So I don't know if that's ripoff or they were trying to homage Outland. I'm not sure, but the Aliens Colonial Marine games definitely were influenced by the laser strippers in Outland. Before the uh, – we actually – started recording mike and i were talking about the uh the male performers and the female performers but those male performers that's incredible stamina they're just standing there holding those those girls they are the pole basically they, they have nothing to lean on that's and they just stay there and it goes on and on and on i, I was getting exhausted watching that well, and I noticed now, I don't know if it was just reused, you know, footage or something, but when they go back to the bar near the end, they're doing the exact same dance routines within the lasers. And I was like, is that lazy or are they just like, you know, like Cirque du Soleil, you hit your mark three shows a night? Yeah, I, or it never stops. They so reminded me of Cirque du Soleil. I guess they kind of reminded me of the TV stations in THX 1138, where they would have like the muscular black guy doing the dance and stuff with the tribal music going behind it. I mean, it's like, it's interesting to see projections of a future and what is sex culture going to look like at that time. And that it really, I mean, it, I found it interesting um, thinking about the male characters in the movie and how almost every single one of them mentions prostitutes, you know, and there's just such a theme of prostitution going on through this. And it's just like, oh, yeah, I didn't really think about that, how each guy maybe, you know, 
in their own way, you know, whether it's uh, the Stephen Birkoff character, Sagan, who hates prostitutes, or Montone, who's just like, hey, the whores are pretty good. And, you know, each one of them, and I guess really even Frances Sternhagen talks about prostitutes as well, because her job is to make sure that they don't come down with syphilis or anything. So prostitution is such a major part of their life, and that is the accepted part, but it's the drugs that take it too far, you know, or at least the drugs that make you go psychotic and kill yourself and possibly kill somebody else. Well, but then there's also the the thing she when Sternhagen is talking, she mentions the company prostitutes. So these are con am employees whose job it is to fuck other employees for money. Just think about think about the HR implications of that. Well, think about the brilliance of the uh, the setup. They're paying these guys, and then they're getting the money right back through the the sex workers. So it's genius. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's beautiful. I do think that that's another way that the movie is influenced by Alien. Is that they're these uh, these very blue collar, very working class concerns, and uh, you know the the this idea that the the big company is is really the the main bad guy in this whole thing because of the the game they've set up and the the situation they've got these guys in and they have them over a barrel and they know <laughs> they're they're really powerless to to do anything about their situation so Mike, Mike you mentioned you know the people freaking out and you know killing themselves are we just going to not mention that the first guy who goes splody is John Ratzenberger? Yeah, that was pretty good. I didn't even really recognize him. I, I didn't those, either. I love early John Ratzenberger roles where it's just like, oh, he was in Superman? What? You know, and just those little like tiny moments where you're just like, who is that guy? Oh, he was in Empire Strikes Back? What? I don't – what? How is this? And then he shows up in movies like House 2, The Second Story, and he's the best character and he's a fucking cameo. And I love that Francis Sternhagen played his mother on Cheers. Right. And uh, okay, one quick thing about Francis Sternhagen. This movie, the first time I saw it, freaked me out. And I'm not exaggerating. If you gave her a southern accent, that is my grandmother. She looks just like my grandmother. She act the way she speaks, her physical appearance, even her voice. I was like, "Grandma, why are you in outer space?" I swear to God, I'm not making that up she looks so much like my grandmother it's creepy i can't say enough nice things about her in this movie like i said every time she's amazing and i just love that humor and her talking about how such a smart piece of equipment and a wreck like me trying to run it you know you haven't your medical all-star here company doctors are like ship's doctors most are one shuttle flight ahead of a malpractice suit. You know, you're talking about wanting your sequel or prequel, and it's like, I would love to have the Dr. Lazarus prequel or the Dr. Lazarus TV show of her moving from space colony to space colony and maybe solving mysteries. Who knows? Is it a little on the nose, her name, though? Yeah, Dr. Lazarus is pretty good. I mean, I think a lot of these names, I know for sure the, the Birkhoff character of Sagan was named after Carl Sagan. I gotta assume that Ballard was named after J.G. Ballard. I'm not sure about Montone. That is a weird fucking name. Yeah, I thought Montone, Monotone, but I, I, I'm not sure about that, yeah. 
sure somebody's going to be like, oh, don't you know, that's like a, you know, a city over in France and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, yeah, no. I mean, Shepard, the whole idea of shepherding these people through here and stuff, and he's kind of their spiritual leader. I'm surprised that he didn't try to start a religion as well as having, you know, here, here rather than the blood and the wafer, here's the drug and now, you know, go out and work for me and my children. Well, and then there's also something weird just about the cast. Now, I, I get it in Hollywood. You sometimes get, you know, pigeonholed and whatnot. Look at how many cast members in this movie went on to cop shows. It's sort of creepy. Like you got James, James Syking, you got Clark Peters, you got Manning Redwood. You've got a whole, like four other of the like background actors all would go on to like Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, The Wire. It's like, this this movie was just the the training ground for future cop TV shows. Well, and then Peter Boyle, I guess to your point, didn't he uh, voice the dog cop? Uh, wasn't that a TV show for a while? Peter Boyle is a tough, ill-mannered cop who is run down in the line of duty. But that's not the end of his story. Now, now he's reincarnated. Ha! Surprise! as a streetwise bulldog in Puchinski. What are you gonna do now? Well, first I'm gonna try licking myself, and then I'm gonna catch my killer. The talking dog teams up with his astonished former partner to put the bite on crime. It's touching. Look at me. I've become a dog. It's all sinking in now. It's poignant. But it's life. It's precious life. It's unforgettable. You're a dog. I'm a cop. This is ridiculous. Uh, no, it was, an, it was a pilot that didn't make it, but he, they did do one episode of that. And he was also Andy's sponsor on NYPD Blue for multiple episodes. He won an Emmy for his role, his like five or six episode arc on NYPD Blue. But he wasn't a cop on that. He was just on a cop show. It's funny because we've actually talked on this podcast about the movies that he did before this and after this. He was in Where the Buffalo Roam and Hammett. Uh, and we've talked about both of those. Now we finally get to talk about Outland and talk about how Peter Boyle is very welcome here. Of course, I know he's passed away, but he is like one of the, the, the heroes in the pantheon of the projection booth because I love this guy. He is fantastic in pretty much everything that he does. And him in here, I love him as a villain. I think he does such a great job, and especially that he just – is so matter of fact about things. He never, even though he he gets mad, he never screams. He never carries on. He he isn't one of these villains who's going to you know smash a table or anything like that, other than with his back. But he is very calm and just very like, "Hey, Marshall, you're a dead man." He's so oddly likable. But should should we also talk about how this movie actually came out though? It didn't do very well at the box office. It just barely made back its budget, and the critics savaged it. You go through old Cinema Fantastique, Star Logs, all the, you know, like Monsterland, all these other magazines that don't exist anymore. This thing was savaged by the critics and on, on almost all of their worst of 1981 movie lists. So, isn't it kind of funny that that we're talking about it as kind of an oddly influential film when no one in 81 wanted it? It was weird. 82 was that way, too, with a bunch of big, big sci-fi movies, uh, influential ones. But, uh, of course, E.T. is the one that uh, everybody went to. <laughs> right. 
Nobody went to the thing, that's for sure. Yeah, and like I said, so many people just said, oh, it's high noon in space. And I'm just like, well, is it? Is it high noon in space, really? I mean, it really isn't until the whole idea of we are going to get two more men to come in and take care of this problem, and they're coming in on the noon shuttle, basically. And then it becomes, then it's high noon. Then it's Gary Cooper going around, hey, will you help me out? Nobody wants to help him out. And he he doesn't plea as much as Gary Cooper, which I kind of appreciate. And he really gets a lot of guff right away. The one guy who's in the bar was just like, hey, isn't that your job? You're supposed to protect us. And it's just like, whoa, okay. And you know, what about your men? It's just like you need to you need to take care of this yourself. You get paid to do this, not me. There's also the fact that once they know that they're sending these two killers, everyone knows. Isn't that like systematic corruption? Every single person from the people washing the dishes know to give O'Neill a wide berth that, that this is a dead man walking. Isn't that a little – I mean because you've got this society that's clearly built on at least law and order on paper, even if you know we know this, the corruption is systematic. Everybody knows – a capital crime is about to be committed and everyone's just like, you know what? That's the cost of doing business. This seems like sort of a flawed legal system or it's just this one colony is so super corrupt. That's what I'm interested in in like a side quill or something. Just how systematic is the corruption in this universe? You know, at least on this planet or this colony, it is through and through. And yeah, I love that line of, of Sternhagen's when she's like, Seems there's some kind of flu going around. You'd be surprised the number of workers who are going to be sick this Sunday. It's your actual epidemic. Are you going to be sick this Sunday? You're looking for sterling character. You're in the wrong place. You know, if you're the kind of guy you're supposed to be, you wouldn't stick around. That's why they sent you here. Maybe they made a mistake. I was afraid you'd say something like that. You really think you're making a difference? Then why, for God's sake? Because maybe they are right. They send me here to this pile of shit because they think I belong here. I want to find out if, what if they're right. There's a whole machine that works because everybody does what they're supposed to. I found out I was supposed to be something I didn't like. That's what's in the program. That's my rotten little part in the rotten machine. I don't like it. So I'm going to find out if they're right. The way that Hyams has them framed, one on either side of this racquetball court, and then finally giving them a two-shot near the end of that, it's such a nice moment to say, like, yes, these two are together. They're super far apart in the screen, but we're seeing a two-shot of these two characters, and we know that there is a connection there. I also like the fact that that there is no love story between them, that it's just these are two people who are sick of being told to do the wrong thing. They can't live. I mean, because at first she sort of fights O'Neill a little bit, but then you kind of get this implication she knows she can't live with herself if she just lets this go on. Well, I don't like 
and I'm glad that I gave a spoiler warning. I don't like that he goes back to his wife at the end. I would rather that he and Lazarus just start doing some boning and just fuck that wife. I mean, who? she's such a piece of shit for leaving him and taking Polly with him. It's just like, fuck her. He shouldn't go back to her. I think that that kind of speaks to one of the big differences between this and High Noon, which is that this is all his choice. In High Noon, he's making a pretty practical decision to stay here and take care of this now, because if he runs, then they're going to track him down maybe on the range, maybe in the next town, but they're coming for him no matter what. Sean Connery just has to get out of the way. All he's got to do is get out of the way, and, you know, he's he won't. He's just suddenly stubborn. And is I wonder, would this have happened if his wife hadn't left him? If she hadn't walked out, if he hadn't felt like such a monumental failure as a husband and a father, would he try and prove himself as a, you know, in his job? Or would that, uh, you know, would this be a a non-movie? Would he just kind of keep his head down and and do his time, his year on the rock and, and get out? Which also brings up the question, is all he did push his execution date back a little bit? Because he doesn't really have a ton of evidence on Shepard. We know Shepard is doing this. And we know Shepard's probably going to get killed because, you know, the space mob, the Orion Syndicate, whatever they, it is, they did threaten him that, you know, since he fucked this up, he's next. But that doesn't make it okay with them what O'Neill did to them. Wouldn't you think that all he did is postpone his own execution? Well, maybe. I mean, unless they're, I mean, I think if they're practical, no. If they're vindictive, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think he gets he gets out of the way after that. He's like, I'm going to do this one thing. I'm going to leave. I'm sure he knows it's going to start all over again. It's just not going to start all over again on his watch. And I think that's, you know, again, if they're all business, I think he's safe. But if they're, you know, if they're vindictive, then... uh yeah, I don't know. And I, I don't think it's a, a foregone conclusion at the end of the movie that he gets back with his wife and things go well either. You know, he pushed her he pushed her out. I mean, this is not the first of these jobs she's been on with him. She's been doing it at least, you know, as long as their kid's been alive. Um, because, you know, she says he's never been never been on Earth. Uh, they keep doing this. He's he's tired her out, worn her out, and, and she's out of here. Uh, even though she says, you know, come with us. You know, I think he's wondering, is there something about me uh, that, uh, that's that's failing you? Or, you know, is it really just this job? So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that, uh, that things go well uh, when he gets back with his families. What I wanted to see was after he punches out Shepard, like having Lazarus come, come by and say, I'll buy you a hooker. Once Shepard is out of there, 10 more Shepherds will come in and take his place. They just won't come in on the bus. But you also have this implication of a much bigger story that even though the drugs seem to be a relatively new thing, since when Lazarus is doing her investigation, the freakout deaths only go back a couple of, of months. But you get the implication that this is probably happening at other Conam facilities or whatever Conam's competitors would be all over there and 
like I said, it's interesting to know just how much Con Am knew. Were they tacitly being okay with what Shepard was doing? Because he actually seemed kind of scared, not just of the space mob, but of Con Am finding out what he was doing to get those numbers high up. So I think there's an underlying conspiracy here of maybe Con Am doesn't know, or at least they don't notice of what, what the drug is doing. I think it's, uh, it's kind of implied that, uh, that this, this probably is, is pretty common all, all the way around because they say that you take this and you work better at first and then 10 months to a year later, it fries your brain. And you know, that opening information at the beginning of the movie is that a tour here is one year. And so we're, we're, approaching the end of the year and all these deaths are starting to occur, uh, you know, which is why a couple months ago there weren't happening and now everybody's dying. And, you know, I think it's just points to, you know, more of the expendability of uh, these workers. That's well, what I, I took away from it. Well, it, it all, it also implies what happened to the person who Neil is replacing. Because they don't mention, like, if this guy got killed, maybe he, you know, was fighting back against Shepard. Maybe he asked for too much money and he was killed. Or did he burn out? We're, we're never given the implication of what happened. Because these – you would think these would be on a cyclical cycle. Like, every year, a new a new, a new marshal would come in with the new workers and whatnot. But this is near the end of their tour – and then you're getting a new marshal implies, at least to me, or maybe I'm just reading way too much into it, something happened to the previous marshal. Your predecessor assumed that rural policing was easy. Ended up having a nervous breakdown. And he had one thing you haven't got. What's that, sir? A great big bushy beard! A lot of big actors... They, they kind of turn their nose, especially in this era of science fiction. I mean, nowadays, you know, big actors know sci-fi is where the money is. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, the big actors didn't want anything to do with sci-fi. I mean, yes, this is a post-Zardoz, Sean Connery, but it's still the fact that he was a really big get for a movie like this. Oh, yeah. And when it comes to the posters, I mean, it's him. He is the man on the poster, and... Who cares about anything else? I love the mix of aesthetics on that poster. The outer space, the uniform, the sort of blue-collar uniform, and a fucking shotgun in outer space. Outer well, space and, and then you got the light coming through the A of Outland. Could you consider Meteor sci-fi? That was the one that he did, like, two movies before this. Well, I mean, it is sci-fi, but that's really more of a Irwin Allen disaster porn thing. Yeah. It's interesting to read, because he did a lot of press for this. There were a lot of interviews that I read of him at the time, and it was it was really interesting. There was a, a great confrontational interview that I read, or it was a transcription of a press conference, and one of the reporters was talking about how trite the dialogue is in the movie, and Connery went after this guy, and he was just like, oh... I didn't realize that you were a screenwriter. Well, if yeah, and the guy's like, well, no, not really. He's like, well, have you written screenplays before? And just starts going after him about like, if you're such a hotshot writer, why aren't you writing screenplays? And maybe you won't be writing trite dialogue like I like I had to say. And it's just like really going after this guy. I was like, right on, Sean. This is great. 
actually some of the dialogue in this is pretty good, especially the interplay. Maybe it's just the chemistry that Lazarus and O'Neill had, but it's got a lot of pretty witty dialogue. I actually, I mean, yeah, there's obviously going to be clunky moments. I don't have a problem with the dialogue in this movie. I think it's above functional. We should talk about intro vision, though, Mike. Yeah, I was trying to figure out all the stuff with IntroVision. I was reading a lot about the models and the model maker and how that was being set up. I read a little bit about IntroVision, and I wasn't sure how that necessarily differed from like a front projection that they used in 2001. Can you explain what IntroVision is? Because that was the quote-unquote gimmick of this film. From what I understand, in, in, instead of a, like a normal front projection or a rear projection, you you could always have that. You'd always had that separation where it obviously looked like the actor is not there. Where intro vision, I think it was more of uh, projecting all the elements together. You know, it's it's sort of how how certain matte paintings are photographed. How you. You know, it, it takes a pass and then adds the matte painting and then takes another pass to put it onto the film, which then marries the two together, which makes them look better. I think this was something like that. It it worked, but maybe we weren't meant to see it in HD because, man, the separation. I even, I even went and pulled out my old VHS. It looks fine. On the DVD, the special effects have not aged very well i think this is one of those things you were never meant to see in hd and i think intro vision it's just dated is all that doesn't make it bad it's just dated because i imagine what you're saying is most of those scenes especially towards the end when we're doing the whole cat and mouse thing with him and the two killers that have come to kill him that stuff I mean, frankly, I start to tune out during that stuff. I like the interplay of the actual actors when it comes to that stuff towards the end, which, I mean, we've got that great, great score that's going on in this movie. That keeps things interesting. But some of the cat and mouse stuff just starts to bore me a little bit. Well, and then I don't know if the, if this was the, the DVD print. No, I bought this on DVD when it first came out on DVD. So like 99, maybe two. 2000 maybe 2000 and this was one of those flipper discs with you know the full screen and widescreen i have not watched this movie on dvd since then i couldn't believe how bad the print that they put on the dvd was non-anamorphic it was full of ghosting there were some scenes that were super soft and i'm like this looks like shit so i went pulled out my laser disc even though that's full frame Man, is that more crisp than the DVD. When your DVD looks worse than the full-frame Laserdisc, you fucked up that release. I ended up buying this on Blu-ray because Hyams gave an audio commentary for the Blu-ray release. And the Blu-ray looks really nice. There are some really dark shots in this, but then there's some dark shots that he did very purposefully where there's just a tiny little pin light that's on Connery and the way that he can control everything is just fantastic. And, and, uh, you know, Hyams was, even though there's another cinematographer that was credited uh, to this, I think he got pretty pissed because Hyams likes to be the cinematographer on his own movies or is the cinematographer on his own movies. And so, you know, Hyams is very, very particular about how things are going to look. And Connery looks amazing in this. And I have to say, the stuff towards the end. It doesn't. It didn't look bad to me, but I'm not nearly as in tune with that stuff as I think you are. 
But yeah, I have this on DVD somewhere. I just couldn't find it. <laughs> so then it became, well, why don't I buy the Blu-ray? Because it's really super cheap, and I get a Hyman's, Hyams commentary as well. Well, and I think about the lighting. Part of this has sort of a flat TV look to it, but I think that's intentional. But then when he's dealing with the blackness, when it's it's the a dark room or something like that, I think – when the scenes are very brightly lit, like like in the office, the, the the doctor's office and that, it looks very flat. But then I think that was intentional because then when he goes into like the living quarters or when they're doing the whole prostitute rescue thing when, and the light's all red inside, you get these nice rich depths to it. I think that was intentional or he was fighting with the cinematographer and it just was uneven. I'm not sure which. I do really love those tables, the underlit tables. I mean, it's almost a staple in sci-fi films, the whole idea of having the table being the light. The bar, too. The entire bar was lit like that, the the actual bar bar. Yeah, that looked really nice. I think that that whole 10 forward set looked really nice. There was a bar up the street from me. Uh, <laughs> it closed down a few months ago, but I used to like to go in there because the tables were uh, – uh, they were video old sit down video game consoles, you know, Frogger and stuff like that. But uh, that just meant I looked pretty super cool because it was really dark in there with just this underlighting on the table. And I, it comes from sci fi movies of, of the time. This Blade Runner and Star Wars Cantina. I love that that lighting coming up. There was a bar that I was at in Las Vegas at the I think it was the Treasure Island or the Mirage, and they had these big rectangular tables that were white but then it was interesting you could put your finger down on the surface of the table and animations would start playing where your finger was so then you could like move your finger around and these animations would follow it was almost like a like a lava lamp uh slash table and it was really fascinating and then especially you start drinking those things become really fascinating I've never seen that in a table, but at the mall once they had one of those. It was a kid's thing, but it was on the floor. And where kids would step, it would create animations. And if they would slide their foot, the animation would, like, you know, a little dog would follow them and stuff. So same kind of thing, but I, I only ever saw that at a mall. All right, we're going to take a break and play a quick interview with Sergeant Montone himself, James B. Sicking, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. <laughs> I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohagen, the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for Sale. 
We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. I am curious how you managed to decide to want to be an actor. What what was your inspiration? Oh, I don't know if I had any inspiration. I came from a family of seven parents and five children, of which uh, five of them were ordained uh, ministers in religion. So uh, I thought I'd go into legitimate show business. Was there any strife? Were you the, uh, the, the black sheep in the family? No. no. We had a wonderful family, and I was I was... Well supported, and we supported each other. It was great. Did you end up going to school for it, or did you? Oh yeah, yeah. I I I, I messed around. I guess uh, when I was in high school, I did plays. You know, I, I was a junior class president, and uh, the class advisor said, "You know, uh, Jim, you 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 have the junior class play makes the money for the junior senior prom, and nobody's." Auditioning, so you should go up and set an example. <clears throat> and they they cast me, and that started out my 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 career. I grew up watching you on Hill Street Blues, and so going back and watching some of the films that you did before that, it was always so nice to see you show up. And I was always so surprised at the end of Point Blank when you showed up at the end of that as a very crucial role. How was your experience on that film? John was uh, wonderful. It was a. Uh, I went in and read for him, and that was it. And it was an interesting script, and it was. Uh, it was a change in the, the film industry because it was uh, not a big studio picture. I remember when John was fighting with MGM about it. They said, "You can't. What are you doing? You, 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 where's the story?" And they said, "No, I'm, I'm doing this," and that was that. It was a t- complete uh, uh, because of the star who said, "I want to do this film with him." That's uh, so that that was, and that also incidentally was the first. Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. First film uh, I ever got screen credit. I mean, in the front, you know, you're, oh, you're credited always in the back. 
you can't say that that was the role that put you on the map because you're not in there that much. What is the role that you think, you know, okay, now people know who James Seeking is? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I, I, really, I really don't know. You just keep, you know, you just keep working, you know. The agent would send you out or somebody would request you. <clears throat> I mean, Hill Street uh, uh, television show uh, made a big difference because I was... I've been an actor, let's see how long. I was uh, an active actor for about 50 years, and I did uh, uh, 15 years of series television. You know, <laughs> it makes a big difference. I did three years on General Hospital. I had a, I had a terrific time on General Hospital. We went live every day at 12 o'clock noon to New York. That's got to be so intense to do that live TV. Oh, <laughs> it was a hoot. <laughs> You ended up rewriting the script sometimes, but <laughs> just to get through it. Well, tell me about meeting uh, Peter Hyams and working with him. Several of my friends who had a, a big influence on my success, we all had our children at a, a school uh, in Santa Monica where we all met, and we would uh, we were you know we'd go and see our kids. We all had and. Um, Peter Himes' children uh, were them, and in fact, Ron and my son Andrew are very, very good friends, and have worked on films together themselves and other things. And uh, John is a hell of a filmmaker. Then, then, then was Stephen Botko and his and his daughter and our daughter were you know soulmates. They went every weekend, one of them was at one of his house or the other, and with that whole collection uh, who ended up being in show business, uh, we we helped each other. Did you have to try out for Capricorn One, or did he just say, "Come on over and do this role"? Oh, he just said, "He just he just said, I'm doing this film. Come come be in it." And I said, "Oh." I have to ask about your beard in Capricorn One. Was that all natural? Was that all you? Yeah. That was a very healthy-looking beard you had on Outland. Oh, yeah, I grow a good beard. <laughs> I haven't grown in a long time. I'm afraid to be quite gray right now. <laughs> what was your experience like on that? Uh, Outland was a delight. You know, uh, we was in England. We shot it in England. And we shot it at the, uh, the name of those studios just outside of London. It was a, a great, great time for me because I'd go, I'd go to work and we'd drive through the... English countryside, and I had not spent that much time there. My wife and I had spent time on our honeymoon uh, in Europe and England. But to live there that, for that time, and Sean was a hoot. He was a terrific guy, wonderful man, uh, who was uh, the least pretentious of any actor I ever worked with. <laughs> he said, you know, they only hire me because I've got this voice. He really did have a voice, so my God. In fact, that's what he said. It was his voice that made it. I think the the best thing about uh, show business is not to uh, take it too seriously. You seem to be so busy for so much of your career. Looking at your filmography, it's just like five roles in this year and four roles in that. I mean, just seeing you at 1980 with Trouble in High Timber County, Ordinary People, The Competition, Outland, all, you know, one after another after another, and then jumping into even the Star Chamber right afterwards. It just looked like you were never not working. Yeah, I guess you're right. I never thought of it. So I was always looking for a job, you know. And one job leads to another, you know. Somebody's coming, somebody's working. I remember 
uh, ordinary people. I, I, I will never. It sounds terrible, but we were working on. Uh, what were we working on? Oh, over in, in Las Vegas, we were doing uh, uh, the, the electric horse. I was working on an electric horseman, and the actor. God, I'm terrible. Can't even remember his name. He did ordinary people. Oh, Robert Redford. No, oh, Robert. Yeah. And so we were sitting at the table watching for this goddamn horse to get up on stage or whatever it was that we were shooting there. And we were just, you know, BSing. And uh, he said, what have you been reading lately? I said, you know, I read a hell of a good book, I must say. And I was, uh, it was first of, her first of, well, book was called uh, Ordinary People. And he looked at me and he said, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, well, what do you, what, why, what do you say, what? He said, you read it and you liked it? I said, yeah, yeah, why? Why are you so upset about it? He said, I just uh, bought the film rights and it's going to be my first film. <laughs> I said, well, good luck. He said, you're going to be in it, you butthead. <laughs> so that's how things happen. Tell me, what was your experience like working on the Star Chamber? Uh, it was a good experience. You know, I mean, I don't know if you want to hear stories or what. Uh, no, it was, I, I enjoyed it very much. It was a, a good company. And of course, Peter was terrific. It was his idea and his script. And he had, uh, he had just gotten himself uh, so that he could shoot the film. You know, he, he got, a, got a, a license to be also an operator on him. And uh, we, all, we just had a good time. You know, the, you can tell when you're on a film and things are going okay, and and you, and you don't have a lot of egos. If you have a lot of egos, the films get to be a pain in the ass. If, if you're a carpenter, you know, if you're a hot carrier, or if you're working on a, you know, a steel mill, you, you know, you have friends, you work, you have a guy to go out and have lunch and say, yeah, yeah, nobody seems to be. But if you have uh, uh, pretentious people, uh, it, it gets a little bit of a nuisance. You worked a couple times with Mike Hodges. I've talked with him before. He's very unpretentious. At least that's my my impression. Oh yeah, Mike. Uh, <laughs> Mike, <geez. laughs> I just called me. I was uh, somewhere. I had forgotten up north, raising money for some charity. And he said, "Listen, I'm, I've got a, a film I'm, I'm making. I want you to be in it." And I said, "Okay." He said, aren't you interested in what it is? No, I just want to work for you. Fine, that's great. So he said, uh, uh, I think I can probably get you, you know, some, some good, I can't pay a lot of money, but I can get you some good billing. Maybe your, you know, your name over the title or something like that. I said, oh, great. Well, anyway, so we got it all organized. And uh, I got over there. Uh, and he, call, he called me at the hotel. He said, listen, i got to apologize. I'm not sure I can get you your name over the title. And I said, I don't want my name over the title. He said, you don't? Yeah, the title of the film was Morons from Outer Space. And I said, Jesus Christ, why would I want my name on the title? <laughs> Morons from Outer Space, starring Jim Sicking. Can you imagine the poster right now? Oh, yes. What have you been up to lately? I think I already walked away from the business or kind of faded out of the business. Probably 15 years ago. I had enough. We had grandchildren, and uh, it, was, it was beginning to get hard to remember all the dialogue. And it was, you know, the idea of getting up at uh, five o'clock in the morning to 
at the studio by uh, 6.30. I was just all getting to be too silly. And, uh, you know, time, times change. Life changes. And you have, to, you have to go with how your life changes, not try to hang on to it forever. You know, I have this thing where whenever I talk to somebody who has done an episode of Columbo, I have to ask them, what was your experience like working on Columbo? On Columbo? I had a great time. Yeah. I had a great time on Columbo. Why? It's a lot of people. I love that show. So. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was much fun. I, I had a great time on most of the stuff I did. First of all, uh, as an actor, it's always happy when you're working. The best thing that ever happened to me is the woman I married, who never allowed me to be a pretentious asshole. We have a terrific family. I learned one thing that I was very happy to know. I, a man called me up and said, uh, I need you to be a celebrity for a, an event, raising money for cystic fibrosis. And that was the key to being able to deal with recognition. People would... So I said, well, yeah, well, I didn't know what cystic fibrosis was, and I didn't know who he was, and I asked him well, what was his interest in it, and he said, well, three of my sisters died of it. I said, okay, where, where is it? Let's go. Let's be there. And I discovered that I could uh, use the so-called uh, celebrity capital letters to do a lot of good, to raise a lot of money, to be involved in using that thing that most of us find somewhat pretentious to a positive way to 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 do something worthwhile with uh, that that uh, kind of silly momentary uh, celebrity. It made my life a lot better. I, I was one of those things where you you said, "Oh God, I'm really doing something worthwhile." You know, people have professions where they have impact on uh, the world and on people, uh, you know, physicians or whatever. Uh, I always felt that the, it was kind of silly until I I realized that there was a quality to it that you could apply and uh, it would uh, it would it would really make it all worthwhile. You were saying that you've had good experiences on so many of the things that you worked on. It's got to be so different for you. You were on like this episode of MASH or that episode of this. But when you get those roles like uh, Howard Hunter or um, you know Dr. Hauser, where you can really explore that over many, many weeks or months, it has to be such a nice thing as an actor plus a regular paycheck. Oh, no question about that. Oh, no question about that. I was I was fortunate because um, because of the people I worked with. Uh, Bacho was uh, would call and say, he said, "I got I I'm writing a role for you, and I want you to do this, that, and the other thing." And we did that on Hill Street, and uh, it turned into a, a you know a, really a blockbuster. I, I had never met that kind of response on a show because. I think it was on every night until uh, they finally found Thursday night before it, it got ratings. And then it was, oh, what are we on? Five years, seven years, something like that. And I got to go to all different places. I got to go work on stage in uh, in England I, and did, uh, I mean, worked all over the world because uh, that show was all over the world and uh, was had a great response. So it, it opened up doors that you didn't have before. The pipe, 
the pipe was just such a nice touch for that character. <laughs> well, I thought he was a pretentious asshole, but you know, it, it worked. I mean, not to say that you're falling back on a prop or anything, but that just it just added so much to who he was as a person. And and Stephen and and the uh, and all the directors took advantage of it, you know. <laughs> they would say, "Hey, where's your pipe?" I said, "Oh shit, we're going to do that again." Well, that's great. I'm glad that that opened doors for you because that was such a, a terrific show. And that just, I mean, people look now at the Breaking Bad and some of these more recent shows, but it's like, yeah, before Hill Street, television was a much different landscape. No question about it. And people don't realize that. But then I went on uh, <clears throat> with uh, Stephen to do uh, Doogie. He said, would you do that? And I said, of course. I said, I'd, I'd love to do that. That would be great. That would be a whole different thing. And we had a, a brilliant actor playing Doogie. He was 15 years old when he came on the show, and I was absolutely enamored with his talent. He was really something. And he just continues to astound and amaze me. No, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a very, very gifted actor. I, I'm, I'm always said uh, I was a good actor, but I was really, I was really lucky. That was the, the difference between being a gifted actor. Well, Mr. Sicking, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love talking about myself. talking about outland like i said i think it's really unfair to compare outland to high noon just say oh it's a sci-fi high noon there are more differences to me than there are similarities and we've already kind of seen this whole the killers are on the way thing in other films like once upon a time in the west or high plains drifter and in those it's called homage i would be fine saying that's an homage in this film like I said, I just don't see all of the similar. I think it's just easy shorthand to say, oh, it's high noon in space. But, uh, I mean, high noon, it's so different in so many ways. And the biggest way for me is the way that high noon that they tried to do this whole real time thing that we've seen in movies since then. But I don't, I'm not an expert in real time editing, but I love this whole thing of, hey, the killers are coming in at noon. That's, however many minutes away and we're going to cut this movie to be that many minutes until that clock strikes noon and get these guys in here. There's that. And then there's also, you know, high noon is a fantastic allegory for what was going on in the political situation in the United States in, you know, the years that this was happening. But I don't necessarily see that political allegory 
as strong in Outland. I don't think we were in that same situation when it came to this. So I see this more as a, I see Outland more as a very entertaining film than necessarily a uh, an allegory for the HUAC committees, you know. But that could just be me. I mean, I, I could be completely, you know. Do you guys agree with me, or you feel free to disagree? Because you know, the, maybe everybody is right, and I'm absolutely wrong that this is more similar to High Noon that I'm giving it credit for. I've just watched High Noon and this one pretty much back to back in the last couple of weeks, and uh, it was the first time I'd seen High Noon in uh, many years. And I was struck by how kind of the the law and orderness of it kind of rubbed me wrong. You know, he's complaining about all the liberals letting people out of jail, and and we should just kill them. And and this one seems much more cynical and and. Uh, the, the bad guys are, are the the corporation really, and the, and the people who expect people to live in these uh, these awful conditions, uh, and then you know shortchange them on the contract that uh, that they signed. You know they they only get seven guys to clearly stated as an eight man shift. Actually, I think uh, I like this one politically probably more than High Noon at this point. But you know it's one of those things probably that uh, the allegory is is good enough it can be used by everybody to to make their point a lot changed in the 30 years between high noon and this and yes i mean there are obviously going to be some similarities but i think it's dismissive to just call it high noon in space and i think that might be why it it technically failed in 81 which we should also just talk about that why didn't this movie work in 81? The the pump was primed. Science fiction was hot. You're just coming off Empire Strikes Back. There's all of the hype for – I mean I know Blade Runner didn't make it at the time. But you know, there's, there's Blade Runner coming. You've got Return of the Jedi coming. Why didn't this movie work? I, I'm not sure. I think – well, for one thing, the, the movie's bleak. And I, I think outside of a horror movie, an alien, you can be bleak because that's what people going into that kind of movie are expecting. In Outland, especially when you look at the previews and, and the trailers and that, I think the movie was a little more nihilistic than people wanted. I mean, the critics, you know, they don't matter in this. This movie was always really badass. I just never got to see it. Uh, so I, I held it in great regard. I'm not really aware of its critical reception. Uh, I mean, I remember at the time, and I know Mike's going to snort at this, but like Harlan Ellison called it the stupidest film yet made in the 80s when it came out. He's, he, he said the 80s have just begun, the 80s have just begun, and we have now the stupidest film in the science fiction genre having been released. Oh, Harlan, he's such a curmudgeon. I think it's uh, it's interesting, too, that uh, thematically it's pretty similar to Capricorn 1. Uh, it's about workers who uh it's more important that they appear to do their job than they actually do it in fact they get in trouble when they insist on uh stopping to appear to do their job i think it also uh, has a lot in common with uh busting and running scared even though hyams didn't write running scared all three of these movies are about vice cops uh who are so sick of uh the corruption that they do uh they do bad stuff you know uh Running scared is Billy Crystal and, and Gregory Hines actually quitting the job uh, because they're uh, you know they only come back because they they 
think they've got a chance to murder Jimmy Smith. And Elliot Gould actually kills kills the guy at the end of the uh, busting and gets, you know, busted off the force for it, basically. And, you know, Sean Connery is, is doing the same thing here. He won't turn a blind eye on the thing. So I think interesting uh, to me that Himes keeps returning to that kind of material and uh, all four of those movies. No love for Time Cop in that? I no. really don't care for Time Cop. Wow, that is really my don't. absolute favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme film. I just watched that movie for the first time in however however long it's come out to now, about a month ago. I couldn't believe how poorly Time Cop held up, man. It, that's a bad movie, Mike. I'm sorry. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, still I worked love at it. a movie theater when it came out, and and then I, I thought it was pretty bad. I will say though that preparing for this, I watched Sudden Death, and I liked Sudden Death quite a bit. It had a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff in it. That uh, in fact, the the kitchen fight in um, Outland and the fight with the the woman in the mascot uniform in uh, in Sudden Death very very similar and and both pretty effective. I, I liked Sudden Death. I'm one of those weird people that I love 2010, can't stand 2001. You are a contrarian. Except I'm a, I'm a genuine contrarian because that's how I actually feel, which is maybe worse. Oh, I, I would totally agree that that's worse. But I mean, like Peter Hyams really is, he, he's, he's underrated. Yes, he's made movies that stink. But I think he's also made a lot of movies that are better than people remember. Like, again, you know, you brought up Running Scared. Running Scared, I just recently rewatched. And other than the ending kind of feel, you know, the last five minutes kind of feeling like a like a like reshoots. I think Running Scared holds up remarkably well. Capricorn One, I'm going to be I'm on Mike's side where I like the idea more than I like the actual film. But the idea, given its place and time, is a fantastic one. But again, that's a really nihilistic movie. And I think even though Outland ends on a technically positive note, this is a fucking nihilistic film. Uh, Running Scared is one of my favorites. I have seen that movie I don't know how many times and still freaking quote that movie all the time. That's one of those where I've been – I talked with Hyams years ago because I've been slowly putting together that book about – uh, Elliot Gould for all this time. So I talked to him about Capricorn One. I talked to him about Busting because those were the two Gould films that he worked on or that he had Gould on. And I tried my best to get him back for this episode. And I've been trying for years to get him to talk to me again about um, Running Scared because I just fucking love that movie so much. I, I love Running Scared. I think it's an absolute testament to the the skill of the filmmaker that. We believe Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines are street cops, and there is I that. Think, yes, I, I, no. I mean, I absolutely buy it. I absolutely buy it. I absolutely love it. But yeah, who would cast them? And you know, Elliot Gould, for that matter. Uh, but but then again, okay, I, I can't remember what the title of it fell out of my head. But remember, Jay Leno was a was a badass Detroit cop with Pat Morita. <laughs> we don't talk about that movie around here. <laughs> we, we don't talk. About, you know what? I hate to admit this. The funniest joke in that movie is the most racist joke in that movie. And I feel bad about that, that I laugh at the most racist joke in that film. No, we, we do not talk about Collision Course on this show. As, as a Detroiter, does that hit a little too close to home? 
a little too close. A little too close. Very few movies being made in Detroit at this time, and yeah, that was that was not a good one. And I mean, that was Louis T directing that, and he's he's usually fantastic. But but my point with that is. Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal are way more believable as Chicago cops than Jay Leno is as a Detroit cop. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. In the not-too-distant future, there will be no civilization. There will be no heroes. They say people don't believe in heroes anymore. Well, damn them. You and me, Max. We're going to give them back their heroes. In the not-too-distant future, there will only be madmen and the main force patrol. is a main force officer trying to protect his family and stay alive. His only weapon, 600 horses of fuel-injected vengeance. Mad Max, the maximum force of the future. That's right, we'll be back next week with not just Mad Max, but the whole kit and caboodle, where we'll have a real white line nightmare of a time. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jedediah and Josh. Jedediah, what is the latest with you, sir? Nothing new. Please go my, buy my book, Peckerwood, so I can buy braces for kids. Other than that, yeah, check me out on Twitter if you want. That's some very brilliant pitching that you're doing for yourself, sir. I, I got but- nothing. All, all I'm all I'm picturing. You need the Jay Sherman approach. Buy my book. Buy my book. Buy my book. And then they have to take the standees out of circulation because people keep punching them. If you ever find a standee, please punch it. And Josh, what is the haps with you, sir? I am writing my book, Getting Lost in the Static, about on-air television pilots. I just, hopefully, by the time this comes out, they'll be available for pre-order. Sold a couple of stories to some comic books. Still doing my shows. I'm still dirt poor. I've got my Patreon. That's it. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.